which is really kind of a second creation account that essentially focuses more on, on the relationship between humanity and humanity's creator. And so it's sort of honing in on that relationship, how humanity is made in God's image, that we're literally image bearers of God and that we're made equal. That's important for you to hear, folks, that we're made equal. Like, we often will read different things into the text that just isn't there. It's this wonderful thing we do in Christianity. And I want us to be very cautious to not add to the text, to just take it uh, for what it says, that we are made equal and that we were made for intimate relationship with one another and specifically with the creator of the heavens and the earth. You see, God essentially in Genesis gives us a, a purpose. And, and around that purpose, he actually in chapter two drew the first boundary. Did, did anybody notice that last week? The, the first boundary? I didn't focus on it, but uh, today we're going to hone into that a little bit as we move into chapter three. God actually, through developing our purpose of why we're in the garden, draws around it our first boundary that creates freedom. Now that's interesting, right? A boundary creates freedom. Isn't freedom boundaryless? No one can tell me what to do, right? That's how I'm free? Hmm. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So he's laid out purpose for us there. Put us in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. We talked last week about to serve and protect. That's how the Hebrew reads. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is God giving us purpose in the garden, but then placing a boundary around that purpose. He places humanity in the garden with the purpose of teaching us how to live. Please hear this. The purpose of us being placed in the garden is to teach us, to guide us, to shape us in how to live in perfect harmony with God and in perfect harmony with his creation. He says that we were to, to work and take care of the garden, literally to be at shalom with everything, to be at peace with everything. So this is the Genesis 2 picture that we're given. Live in complete freedom through peace because of this boundary that I'm drawing. Don't eat from this one tree. Now, now, God shows us what life looks like, literally, in chapter 2, what a life of obedience to him actually looks like. He shows us what the Hebrews call shalom, the peace that we seek in our lives. He literally shows us in these first two chapters of the Bible what that looks like. And in verse 15 on, he tells us how we go about doing it. Peace. 
peace in knowing and understanding and living in such a way that we know that God provides for us. This tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil, God places it at the middle of the garden, right? He has two trees, the tree of life and the tree of garden, of, of, of the knowledge of evil. What did I just say? The tree of a garden? Something along those lines? A tree in a garden? Yeah. Why? Have you ever asked that question? Like, are you ever curious enough when you read scripture to kind of go, well, this is strange. Like, why, why would God do this? Well, I can kind of tell you two things. I can tell you that the story doesn't tell us why, that the Bible actually never fully tells us why, but I can tell you what I think. Do you want to know what I think? I, I want you to hear that. There's a difference, right? So when I'm telling you what I think, I'm telling you that we've, we've looked through the scriptures that scholars have worked through these different things and have come up with things that we think it might be, but the text itself doesn't actually tell us. And so I'll tell you what I think, but what I think really doesn't give us an answer. It more so gives us an answer of sort of the, the what it did. So let me give it a shot. I think that God put the tree in the middle of the garden, told us not to eat from it, to weave into us from day one that obedience to God brings joy. I think he needed to weed. Remember, he's teaching us how to live in Shalom. He's teaching us how to cultivate the garden, how to live with him. This isn't something we just automatically know how to do. He's actually teaching it to us. So I believe that the tree was put there to weave into us from day one the obedience that obedience to God brings joy, that submission to God's commands are actually a good thing, actually the way God created us to be. Now, true freedom, and you're going to hear a little bit about that word freedom today, I think actually includes boundaries, and I think that Genesis chapter 2 is telling us that. That in order to truly be free, it's not a boundaryless life, that it includes boundaries. And it has to be that way, I think, from creation in order to create true freedom. Because to have true freedom, you need to have choice. You need to have free will to choose uh, whether you're actually free or not. Think about that. Like, if God just placed us in the garden and we already knew how to do all of this, live in perfect harmony with God... Would we have been free in the garden? So God places this tree in the garden, I think, to represent our free will to choose obedience or to choose disobedience. I think this is part of being human. And I think God did this on purpose, to choose love or to choose evil. I don't think he did it as a, as a temptation, but I think he did it seeking a certain result. It's, it's really a simple question. Will we as human beings choose to trust in the love and providence that God is offering us in the garden, or will we choose something different? Now, some theologians argue about the fact that free will is actually a facade. So if you go to our Reformed friends, pray for them. Um, if you go to our reform friends, they actually say that your free will is a facade, but yet they're the ones screaming for freedom. 
kind of interesting. Because if free will is a facade, does freedom actually exist either? Like, what is God doing in the garden? What is happening? What is he trying to teach us? I think it's about choosing his providence, his love, his ability to provide for us, or to choose something different. And I think that this choice is actually an important aspect of this concept of shalom, of peace. In order for us to be loved... We have to have a free will to choose. Like if I said to Carrie, you, I command you to love me. Carrie's my wife, by the way. (laughs) Right? I command you to love me. Does Carrie have a choice? She, She does in a Genesis 3 world. But what if God was saying, I command you to love me, and there was no tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Is it really freedom? Is it really choice? Does free will actually exist? So I think that the tree existed for that purpose. Now, some theologians also believe that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that God actually uh, likes knowledge, that knowledge is good. It's something that he's giving to human beings. And so that we just weren't mature enough yet in our time in the garden to be able to, uh, to learn that but that in time he may have done that. Okay, that's fine. Again, that's the what do we think kind of thing. The text doesn't tell us any of this, does it? But I think what I'm trying to show you is the result of what the text doesn't tell us. Free will matters when it comes to receiving love. In order for us to be loved, we have to have free will. I really believe that. You can disagree with me. That's okay. It's going to shift how we look at this text. And so we're going to work through the text today and try to see if we were just programmed to love God and didn't have a choice, would we be able to have a true intimate relationship with him and with creation? So the tree, I think, represents our freedom to choose love or to choose evil, to choose the way of God or the temptation of evil. Do we, this is the question I think Genesis 3 is about to ask, do we truly trust that God is our provider? I think that this is actually a really important tension It's a tension that I think the Bible wants to exist because it's part of who we are as human beings, to be truly loved and connected to our creator. This is why I think the tree is in the garden. So as human beings, we have at this point in the story, one boundary. He says, you're free to eat of all these things except this. And we're gonna live in creation with complete trust in God, or we're going to get curious about the tree. Now, all of this sets the stage for today's passage. So that's just chapter two. All of this sets the stage for today's passage. So you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter three, one page over, sword drill, amazing. Now, as you're doing that, I do want to point out a couple things. 
I think it's important for us to actually take a moment to look at what is not present in this story. So I want to start there. For instance, the word fall. The fall of humanity, the fall of man, however we phrase it in the Christian church, that actually doesn't exist in the Bible. So is, is it talking about a fall or is it talking about something else? The, the word fall is not used in Genesis chapter 3 or anywhere else. Another thing that is not present is we're given very little details about the serpent. Like, have you ever read this story and went, where did he come from? Right? Where, where, did, the, where did the... I don't remember the serpent being part of the creation story. There's no mention of a serpent being created. This is the first we hear of this serpent thing. Where did he come from? Did you ever ask those questions? The Hebrew word, actually, to describe the serpent, so the Hebrew word, when you know Hebrew a little bit, it actually gives us some insight into who this serpent actually is or kind of the character, so to speak, of this serpent, and it's the word arum. So when it talks about the serpent, it uses this word arum, and arum means, and you'll see this in our interpretation, it essentially means crafty or smart or clever. And so we know through the Hebrew, and we try to communicate that uh, in our text, right? Now, the serpent was more crafty than any, right? So that's what they're trying to do, is communicate to you through interpretation this word, a room. Crafty, smart, clever. That's all we literally know about this serpent. The narrative doesn't give us any other context. It also doesn't give us any context into why this conversation happens in the first place. There's nothing out of chapter 2 moving into chapter 3. We're never introduced to the serpent. Boom, he's just there. And this, this interaction between humanity and the serpent happens, and we don't even know why. It's totally absent in the story. The reason I tell you that is actually because probably things that you've been taught historically in the Christian church are not actually in the narrative at all. Like the concept of the serpent talked to Eve because Eve is weaker than Adam. Where where do I find that? Like, I do, right? Remember I told you I'm going to tell you why I think the tree was put there? Well, that is theologians trying to tell you why they think he interacted with Eve. But this is actually, if you know anything about Hebraic storytelling, this is kind of really a far stretch. Because in Hebraic storytelling, it's common pattern for the story to solely focus on two characters at a time. And so in, in Hebrew storytelling, it could have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten characters present, but the story itself will always, and this is not a, like a pattern that sometimes happens, this is always in Hebraic storytelling. They hone in on two characters only. And actually, we know very well from the text that Adam is around that Adam is actually present in this very moment. 
Okay, so I want you to remember all of that context that you just weaved through, and we're going to start to dig into... Uh, that was just a 15-minute introduction to the sermon. <laughs> we're going to dig into chapter 3 very quickly this morning. Uh, let's start reading uh, at verse 1. We'll read from verse 1 to verse 6. I'm just going to walk through the passage. It's created the structure of the message today, uh, and we will just see what it says. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may, eat from the, we, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say that you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent says to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband. There's our evidence that Adam was there who was with her, like it's, it's in the text, and he ate it. Now, it's super interesting because out of that same passage, we're like, and men should lead. <laughs> like, think about that. Adam's there witnessing the whole thing, and he's like, oh, yeah, God did say that. Hmm, what should I do? Yeah, that looks good. And let's make them the ones who are going to lead us through everything. Anyway, that's just a side note. That's another conversation for another day. Here is what's happening. The serpent is telling the great big lie. Right? He's telling a great big lie. The serpent suggests that death is not the danger here. Eve, like, God's not telling you something. God's holding back something from you. That God doesn't want humans to know what God knows. God's holding something back, Eve, that that can unlock the mysteries of the world and the knowledge that controls human destiny. Like, don't you want that? You're not surely going to die. Essentially, he's telling her that you can't rely on, God's, on God to provide for you here in the garden. He's holding out on you. Because he secretly created this boundary to keep you away from your freedom. Remember? A lot of us define freedom as boundaryless. I'm free because I, nobody can tell me what to do. That's freedom. So through this boundary, the devil, the evil one, the serpent, is using that boundary as a way to say to Eve, there's more to this life and you can tap into it. You can be in control of these things if you would just know what God knows. This is still the big lie that we as Genesis 3 human beings still believe. 
And it's embedded into our culture. It's embedded into to a lot of our theology. And it's really super scary that we think that a boundary stops our freedom because that's the lie the enemy is convincing us of. To be truly free, our lives need to have no boundaries. No one can tell me what to do, right? I'm free. This is the lie that we believe to this very day. I read it in articles right now. It's the lie that causes us, folks, to mistrust God. It opens the door up to something that we never saw coming as human beings, the presence of evil and temptation. When we lose our trust in God, as we're going to see, it opens us up to all kinds of new emotions that I believe God was actually protecting us from. We weren't ready yet. We weren't ready to hear some of this reality. God needed to train us in the garden and build us up. Isn't that kind of similar to the church? Where you become a Christian and you're not instantly, completely in tune trusting Jesus? That's a process that you need to be built up to. Like if anybody in this room is like, no, I completely trust Jesus with everything in my life. Like you are now Jesus. You realize that, right? This is the human reality is we don't trust fully that God is providential over all things. Just spend a day or two and worry. Stressing about how you're going to be able to control an hour from now. Like you see all of this saturated in the human condition, don't we? And it's all rooted in the lie. These opening passages do so much more than tell us about us falling. They're more about a decision as human beings to not trust the creator and to live life following our ways instead of his. It's the big lie. You can know what God knows. You can control things by simply having wisdom. And if you gain more wisdom, you will be able to control things even better. You can provide better than God can. This is the tension, folks, that lies in Genesis 3 moving forward into all of humanity. Because before Genesis 3, we lived in perfect harmony with God. We were living in obedience to him, caring for the garden and walking in his presence, living within his boundaries. The serpent knew what to go after. Humanity's struggle to trust and receive God's freely given love. Well, our eyes are open, right? Our eyes are open. Now we know what life looks like through a new lens. And the next verse shows us what the consequences of our change in perception that happens in this moment because we want no boundaries and instead we need control. Let's move on. Starting at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized... They were naked. That's important. 
Before that, they didn't realize it. Now they do. So what do they do? They sew fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, says that we were naked and we were not ashamed. And then this transition now happens that we notice that shame enters our lives. In chapter 2, I need you to see this this transition that happens. It's important because it's the one we're living in today. In chapter 2, we had comfort and intimacy with God that was directly available for us. We had it. We were living in it. What the Hebrews call shalom, but that intimacy is now replaced. Hear me on this. That intimacy with God is now replaced with the need to cover up. With, with the need to, to cover up. The narrative is showing us something important. Obedience to God equals shalom and joy. Disobedience equals guilt, shame, and a lack of intimacy. Let's keep reading. Let's go on from verse 9 to, to 19. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you to not eat from? Now, if you know anything about the sovereignty of God and and the fact that he's the creator of heaven and earth, you're like, this is a peculiar conversation now, isn't it? The man said, the woman, (laughs) this is so awesome. (laughs) The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent actually is the problem. He deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I'll make your pains in childbirth very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Just a little one side note. That's a Genesis 3 reality, a broken reality, not how God created things to be. So interesting that we've built doctrines out of a Genesis 3 reality instead of a Genesis 2. Hmm. But the Bible says, well, where does it say it? Anyway, where was I? To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I command you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. That's the introduction, folks, of death. So when he says you will surely die, he's not saying in that exact moment, but he's saying death did not exist until this moment. So our striving for the kind of freedom that has no boundaries 
created death. And it's peculiar, right? Where are you? Like, what an interesting question. Where are you? I want to hone in on that for a second. Adam and Eve's response is so interesting to me. The man blames the woman and the woman blames the serpent. When we live in disobedience to God, when we choose life the way we want it to be, we struggle, folks, as human beings to own our own missteps, don't we? We play the blame game and we see it happening in chapter three. It wasn't me, it was her. It wasn't her, it was the serpent. And no one's like, yep, screwed up. I think, folks, that that's why if you walk through the narrative of scripture, the first step to salvation is what? You all know this, I hope. Recognizing our brokenness and our deep need for God and then repenting. A simple contemporary way is saying, owning it. So you see in the Genesis story, what's he trying to show us? This is what sin looks like in your life. You can't own it. If you want sin gone from your life, own it. When the people, we see this in scripture, when the people witnessed God's spirit come down on the day of Pentecost, what is Peter's response to their question when they say, what do we do? In Acts chapter two, verse 37 to 38, he says, when the people heard this, they were, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, here it is, repent. Change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of action. That's what the word repent means. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Realizing what we have done and asking for forgiveness is the path back to obedience. If we can't own it, we won't own it. You get what I'm saying? That was kind of lame. Anyway... (laughs) So then in the text, we see God give the consequences of all of this. We see the the punishments, so to speak. Notice when God starts to sift through all of this. And I want you to hear this because there's theology that flies around about this too. The serpent is the one who is cursed, not the humans. Just, Just read it. It's not the human beings that are cursed. It's just the serpent that is cursed. God causes the woman to experience great pain and danger in childbearing. And then the man, a lot of us think, is cursed, but the man actually isn't cursed. The man is dealing with a curse, the curse that God placed on the ground that he will now work for the rest of his life. So I know, I know some of us, especially in charismatic circles, have been told that humanity is cursed. That's not the way Genesis 3 actually reads. The serpent is cursed and the ground is cursed and we now have to deal with that. But humanity itself, he doesn't curse. Let's go uh, jump ahead here, verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living things. The Lord God gave garments of skin for Adam and his wife 
and clothe them. The human's disobedience results in a deep disruption and distortion to all of life. Things are no longer the same as they were a chapter ago, but I want you to notice something that's very subtle in verse 21. God makes them some clothes after the disobedience. Folks, he's still providing for them. He's still proving that the lie is a lie. Even after their disobedience, God provides for them by making garments of skin for them because leaves are pathetic. Don't miss this. God is still providing for his creation even after they lived in disobedience to his commands. That's huge, folks. That's a big deal. That's really proving Satan's lie to be nothing but a lie. He'll do exactly what the serpent wouldn't do. Provide for humanity from the beginning until the end. That's the way the Bible reads. Verse 22. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and flaming sword, a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. I'm not going to get into that section too much because I'm already over time. But there is an interesting motif here that's present in the text on purpose, and it's a motif that I want you to notice that's saturated through all of Scripture. It's kind of neat. Whenever humanity moves toward the east in Scripture, it is literally giving you imagery of humanity moving away from God. Do you know, do you know how we know this? Because every time someone moves west, it's showing us walking toward God, and when they move east, it's showing us walking away from God. Read the story of Israel. It'll blow your mind how the Bible does this. Eastwardly means away. West means toward. So you can't move to New Brunswick or Nova Scotia. You can only move to Alberta. Right? West is best. East is not. No. It's a cool motif that happens, and it actually is giving us some things. So when you're reading your Bible, watch and pay attention. East is away, west is toward. That's the way that the Bible reads. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, what, what they really actually do is encourage us to talk seriously, and I think the church has lost this, to talk seriously about the presence of evil in our lives. We don't really do much of that, right? We just chalk a lot of things up to it just happening and different things like that. This, these chapters call us to really talk seriously about the presence of evil in our world and in our lives. Ah, let's jump over to Revelation. I'm doing this off a whim, so yeah, that's right. Revelation chapter 12, listen to this fascinating story. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. 
It's telling us what's happening in heaven. Okay, then the war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon uh, and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So we often read Revelation like it's the things that are going to happen, but Revelation actually reveals to us often things that have already happened. And so this story gives us a hint into where the devil currently resides. Most of us think that the devil rules hell. If anybody ever watched the TV show Lucifer, everybody's going to admit that. The TV show Lucifer says that the devil resides, he rules over hell, but then he comes back to earth to kind of live it up and run a nightclub, which would give credence to the Pentecostal thing of staying away from nightclubs. What Revelation chapter 12 is telling us is, and there's other scriptures that show us this, we need to be aware of the presence of evil in this world right here, right now. It exists. It's all around us, and it's often functioning right through us. Because this is where he is. And he is not omnipresent. He can't be in one place at one time. And so he has other angels that fell as well that are here with him. Everybody's like, that's weird. And I'm like, yes, and it's real. And it explains a lot. This tension has to exist. It's there on purpose because of chapter three, because we live in a Genesis chapter three world. A broken world, a world that's lost, that's corrupted by the lies of evil. Even the best of us can be listening to lies and shaping our lives around those lies. Yet God through his son, Jesus Christ, calls each of us to actually learn to exercise our biblical freedom rather than this lie-based freedom. Wisdom comes from God, and our freedom is wrapped up in living our lives within the boundaries that God sets. That hasn't changed. But we have a choice. We're given this choice all the way back in Genesis 3, And we're going to live our, are we going to live our lives trusting God or do we choose to go our own way and control our own path? Evil tells us that we can't trust God, that he's hiding something from us, that we're not free, that freedom can only come from acting like we are God. But the reality is, is that, that these are temptations that lead us to a life that lacks worship that instead worships power and status and knowledge that corrupts us. But God calls us to worship only him. This is the choice that we have. Do you see something happening here in the text? We're actually being introduced to Israel. In Genesis chapter 3 already, you'll start to see this narrative replaying itself in different ways all throughout 
the Old Testament. It mirrors the stories that we are going to read later about a nation that's chosen by God and also has the option of disobedience or obedience. Instead, it's now through the law instead of a tree. So God recognizes the lack of maturity, and so he says, well, okay, you know, instead of just saying, hey, live in the garden freely, be in relationship with me, just don't do this one thing, now he needs to give us the book of Leviticus. Because that's where humanity's at as fallen human beings. We need instructions step by step. Do this, then do that, then do this, then do that. And guess what happens? We still fail. We're moving eastward. We're moving eastward. This is what you start to see in the scriptures. The Israelites are constantly moving east. Read it. It gets better. In the New Testament, we're given a new start. So I want to jump ahead to the hope. Because Genesis 3 doesn't give me hope, but the New Testament does. Because the New Testament talks about what they call the second Adam. Does anybody know who the second Adam might be? Jesus. God comes as a human. So we're moving more and more eastwardly throughout the entire narrative of the Old Testament. There's moments of moving west, but usually we're just moving east. Repeats itself over and over. So then God comes as a human and he experiences temptation just like we experienced in the garden. Just like we experienced it. But this time, the second Adam chooses obedience. This is the way the Bible reads. Right? The first Adam, disobedience. The second Adam chose obedience. I'm not going to read the story for you, but you can turn to to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and we see that extremely important narrative. So if you jump to the Genesis 3 narrative of the conversation between humanity and the tree, and then you jump to Matthew chapter 4, and the same similar conversation with the serpent, with the devil, but you see a very different outcome. This is the beautiful thing, folks, about Jesus. Because Jesus shows us how human beings can live their lives back in the freedom of the garden. Leviticus couldn't do it. The Apostle Paul says that. If you're going to live your life by the law, you have to live your life by the whole law. Read it, and you'll be like, wow, okay. I don't think I can do that. Jesus shifts that and he calls us back to the freedom of the garden by choosing to shape our lives around how God calls us to live. By choosing to receive the grace and love that only God can offer us. You see, folks, if we choose the path of trusting God with everything, that's actually, if you want to narrow down this entire story, It's losing trust and being called to regain trust. That's it. Like, I did 13 years of seminary to be able to tell you that. Broken trust, rebuilding trust. 
So he's calling us back to the path of trusting God with everything through the life, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the second Adam who chose differently. He wants us to reconnect with this garden-like shalom, this peace. You hear this through the whole New Testament, don't you? That we'll experience the peace that scripture promises us right here and right now. Not in a future revelation thing, but that the kingdom of God is at hand. That it is here that we can live in it wherever God's will is being done. Because the new Adam chose differently. We can have a peace and a comfort in knowing that God's got this. Can you imagine how different the posture of the world would be right now if we just knew that God's got this? And we lived our lives accordingly. Now, the interesting thing is, is depending on what side you sit on, you all think I'm agreeing with you. That's Genesis 3. That's Genesis 3. That's our brokenness talking. God wants us to learn to trust him in such a way that we can rest in him alone. Don't believe the lies that evil places in our hearts and minds that freedom is not about having boundaries. Freedom involves boundaries. And the Bible tells me so. Human beings need purpose and we need boundaries in order to find true biblical peace. And it looks different for each one of us. And the Bible says what it actually takes to find this shalom, to find this peace, to find this biblical freedom, that the key ingredient is humility. You see, sin and evil don't allow for humility to happen. Sin and evil is saturated in pride. I've got this. I can figure it out. I know something you don't know. But humility says, I trust God. And so it's calling us to be humble enough to own our mistakes, to realize that we're broken. But God promises that if we trust him through his spirit, he will bring us peace and comfort no matter what is going on around us. I want you to think about that this week. As you seek that peace and comfort, because we all want it, are you trying to control it in happening and lacking humility? Or do you have the humility to go, I don't have this, but I know God does.